1: Birds in full cry here.
0: Welcome, listeners, to another bonus episode of The Extra Inch. God, we're good to you. Uh, my name is Windy, and I'm joined by someone I've been wanting to interview for the best part of five years now. Uh, historian, writer, tweeter, new dad, podcaster, and Spurs fan, lovely Greg Jenner. Hello, Greg. Hello. How you doing? It's so good to speak to you. We've been trying to set this up for a while, and then obviously you've been incredibly busy with a whole load of projects over the past few years. Um, and which we're going to touch, we're going to touch on all of them, I think. But to start off with, I mean, let's talk about your podcast because that's the new big thing for you. Um, you're dead to me. What, what's it about? How does it work? How did you get into it?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I love the way you just said you're dead to me. It just uh, the, <laughs> the funniest thing about it is the name of the show sounds like a sort of <laughs> like, like an insult. Yeah, exactly. So whenever, whenever I tweet people saying you're dead to me, it just looks like I'm just forever binning them off. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, the show uh, actually has been two years in the making. It, it's it's really one of those ones where you have an idea and you kind of look around and you're going, how does, it, how does this work then, podcasting? And um, it just took a long, long time to get off the ground. And we were going to do it independently, which obviously is how most podcasts are done. And then I was making a documentary for the BBC about history and comedy, which was a really fun documentary, a big three-hour thing. And I was interviewing Stephen Fry and people like that. And uh, I just mentioned it to my producer and she said, oh, you know, I sit next to the head of podcasts. BBC Radio 4. That's mad. And it just was one of those sort of, you know, right place, right time, little a little moment in the year. Um, but the um, the idea, they really liked it. And they, uh, they let us do a couple of pilots. Those went really well. We tweaked the format. And then we went off and made 15 of them. Um, so it's been two years in production. And finally, it's come out this week. So it's been really exciting. And um, we went straight in at number three in the charts, which is amazing. And we're getting fantastic feedback. So... Very nice. Very, very relieved, to be honest. But, um, yeah, really lovely. And so I've listened to the first one on
0: Boudicca, and I'm basically... Prime target audience because (laughs) I I dropped history at school as soon as I could. It just wasn't my thing. But as as I've got as I've got older, I've kind of started wishing that I hadn't. And this is great for me because it it gives me interesting historical stories told in a relatable way by people who are fun to listen to. And you've got some wonderful guests, and you even managed to get Spurs reference into the first episode, which I very much (laughs) enjoyed talking about the uh, the tribes. You had Spurs and Arsenal mentioned there, which was nice. Uh did you did you did you decide on the guests yourself or yeah. were they were they sort of put forward by Beeb? No, it's, it's
1: all my choice. Is really, I've got a fantastic team of um, three or four or five of us who, who sort of work really closely together. But it's my show, which is amazing. Um, the thing that makes me a bit different to other historians is that I am a you know, if I'm in a room with historians, I'm I go full nerd and I become a very boring man. But I specialize in comedy. I've worked on horrible histories for eleven years. Uh, I love comedy. I write comedy. I watch comedy, you know, all the time. And for me, the enormous pleasure of what I do is getting to combine those two quite different things and the ambition on this show was to how how do you put an academic historian with a PhD in a room with a top name stand-up comedian and get them to talk to each other in a way that is not patronizing or boring or intimidating for, for a general audience so we, we sort of spent a while trying to crack it but yeah it's about picking the right guests uh, picking the right subjects uh, and then writing a funny script and then once you get in the room you suddenly get this amazing chemistry so the Boudicca episode with Sarah Pascoe who's an amazing comedian but she's so smart really clever um and just ask these questions that are sort of forensic and, and penetrating and you go oh wow I haven't even thought of that um, and then a very funny historian called Emma Southern who's got a PhD in, in ancient history but she's very funny herself and that episode just kind of whizzed by and then um, episode 4 is the history of football which is you know I had to squeeze that in um, and that's with Professor Jean Williams who's um, she's an expert on the history of football but also on the history of the women's game, she's written the book on it um, and there we got in my mate Tom Parry who I play for Football with, who's a comedian. He's in Pappies, and he's the sort of loveliest, jolliest, most sort of classic Midlands Wolverhampton fan you can meet. He's mm-hmm. he's he's a bundle of energy. He's the nicest guy, and he's just great radio. And the two of them together, bouncing off each other on the history of what football was like in the eighteen seventies, uh, was really really funny. And again, there are some Spurs references in there. I squeezed in a musa Sissoko joke. Uh, oh, which, uh, fantastic! <laughs> that is done. a dream, isn't it? Really. <laughs> so there are five episodes out at the moment. Um, Boudicca. History of Football, Um, The Spartans with Joel Domit uh, and Professor uh, Michael Scott, Um, Blackbeard the Pirate, which is a really funny one with Stu Goldsmith, who's a brilliant podcaster and comedian, Um, and then uh, Harriet Tubman with Desiree Birch. And that episode's about the history of of slavery and, and, you know, it's incredibly profound, difficult territory. And yet Desiree is such a funny, clever woman that it's it's one of those ones where you just go, yeah, that's funny and sad at the same time. So uh, it's been hugely exciting to do it. Five episodes are out already, and I think there are 10 more um, stored up in the pipeline. So uh, hopefully they'll be coming out soon.
0: And, uh, you know, it's no surprise to me that this has been a big smash hit straight away because you've you've hit upon a real a real niche and you're doing it in such an enjoyable way. Um, do you
1: think there could be a, a follow up series potentially to the 15? I'd love to do more. I mean, it, it's... um. It's a lot of work, and um, I think obviously the BBC are trying to do all sorts of exciting new things, and every now and then they they launch a thing and they go, well, that's great, that's really good, we've done enough of that, we can go do something else, we can try something else. So we'd love to do more of them, um, but you know, 15 is certainly enough. I can certainly put it on my CV and go, actually, I've done a really fun thing there that I've always wanted to do, and it's worked. So if they'll have more of them, I've got uh, ideas for another 85 episodes, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, 15 is certainly a very decent... Greg, from an outsider's
0: point of view, it seemed to me that you spent a lot of your career doing a lot of hard work behind the scenes, which allows others to shine and over the past couple of years you're becoming a famous author and now hosting a mainstream podcast yourself um how comfortable are you with having the limelight and the hosting duties
1: <laughs> uh, yes i'm i'm the ingolo kante of here of history shows i i prefer to be the water carrier in the background um do you you prefer that do you well i think it's complicated it's i'm 37 now i've just turned 37 and that's like properly old and um <laughs> And when I started out, I was a 20 something kid who people would look at me and be like, you can't be a historian, you're in your 20s. And it just wouldn't read for them. They didn't understand that you can can be young and study old things. Um so it's taken me quite a long time, I think, just to be taken seriously. And also, the fact is that I work in comedy, so people don't take you seriously if you you work with jokes, because they're like, "Well, you're you're being silly." And it's like, "No, no, I'm I take history really seriously. I just use jokes as a technique to to share why the past should be interesting." Um, I yeah I have to say you know in my twenties I hated being in the limelight and I was a very very shy person and it's taken a while to get a hang of it and and public speaking and being on the telly and whatever is is really scary when you do it for the first time you know the first time I was on TV was a history quiz show about the Tudors that went on BBC Two on Christmas Eve wow and my whole family came over and I sat in the corner and was physically sick from nerves. And so sick that I couldn't eat my Christmas dinner the next day. Oh, bless your heart. I spent two days just just heaving and just like white as a sheet from the anxiety of watching myself on telly and going, oh my God, you look like an absolute book. Why have you said that? What are you doing with your hands? Why are you standing so weird? Like just, it's horrible. It's so horrible. Um, and every time afterwards, it's, it's you know, similar. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting slightly better at it, but... Uh... I think I much, much prefer radio and podcasts than being on telly. I don't mind the sound of my own voice too much and I don't mind hearing myself back. It's seeing myself back that really freaks me out. Um, so it's lovely writing books. It's it's the most wonderful thing. I've written my second book. I'm just finishing it right now and it'll be out in March. Um, and my first book, you know, did really well, which was really lovely. So... I'm very, very privileged in having this wonderful job where I get to work with incredibly funny, clever, talented people. Um, loads of comedy writers and actors and performers and other historians. You know, it's it's really exciting to be a collaborative person because I'm I'm all about sort of team you know, being part of a team, I really love being part of a wider thing. So being the face of a thing is actually a bit scary. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not entirely comfortable with it. But again, I've got a really great team behind me who are doing quite a lot of the work and actually are, you know, really advising me on, on making sure I'm not making any rookie errors. So um it's, um it's been lovely. It's been a learning curve. And I think that now I'm approaching my 40s, I'm starting to kind of go, all right, OK, this is how it works then. But, uh, but yeah, slow burn. I, I, so
0: much of what you have just said resonates with me. And it's, I think it's having the maturity to be comfortable in your own skin. And, you know, it's such a cliche to say that. But it's so true that you, as you get to know yourself, as you get older, you become more comfortable in, in trying different things for the first time. Um, i mean it's i like, 'm I'm, I'm saying this from a much you know it 's on a much smaller scale with me, but I would never have thought i 'd be hosting a podcast um ten years ago. I was like you pretty shy yeah uh, wouldn 't have put myself forward to do it uh, and it 's amazing that when you challenge yourself you you can you can do things and anything 's achievable and equally you know you say it took you felt like it took a while for you to be taken seriously. I had exactly the same experience so i I became a manager at work when I was um thirty but I had such a baby face I looked like i was about 22 Mm. and i was managing people who were a lot older than me and didn't therefore i felt didn't take me seriously i was going into these quite kind of high profile meetings and people would look at me as like i was you know an intern not not the the person who's representing this particular department and it's it's tough that that is that is quite tough to take but you kind of you just learn to think it doesn't matter i'm doing i'm doing what i want to do and that's the most important thing as long as you do yourself proud then it you know what what other people think doesn't really shouldn't really concern you
1: no but it's it is hard if you also just with twitter like you know i i am obsessed with twitter i love it it's my favorite Mm. thing but it's obviously a terrifying place to be if you've said something slightly controversial or slightly stupid so true or you just you go on the tv and open your mouth and say anything at all you just get hundreds of tweets and most of them are nice because people are generally quite nice if they follow you but you're always going to get someone going oh my god you're the worst person ever why don't you kill yourself and you're like oh wow well, yeah. all i said was like you know henry the eighth was quite a bad king um <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit of a weird experience but it's a lot tougher if you're a woman and if you're a person of color or if sure. you're a muslim or you know i'm a white middle class guy i i get off scot-free on a lot of that stuff um but I have a slight sensitivity to people talking about my body image because I had really bad body image issues in my twenties, which i don't really talk about very often but i was I was really depressed in my twenties and uh had a very serious uh near suicidal episode in my twenties and i was wow. twenty nine uh, which i don 't talk about very much, but i 'm sort of starting to open up a bit a bit more on that because i'm thirty seven and it's a, it's further away now yeah um so I hated how I looked and just the idea of Seeing people seeing me <laughs> and being able to see what they're saying about me still throws me through a bit of a loop. To be honest, yeah, so, Twitter,
0: uh, Twitter can be the absolute worst place for stuff like that. It, it can be so good and so rewarding in so many ways, and it's you know connects people. And particularly, I mean, your timeline is just you, it's just joyful because you're having. You, what's lovely about what you do on Twitter is you'll put a question out there to your historian community, and they you know you all seem to follow one another and, and get on really yeah. well. And you'll put a question out there and you'll get loads of replies with really accurate answers within seconds. And that seems like such a great use of Twitter. But then at the same time, you're getting like instant negative feedback on occasion, which is completely unjustified and unwarranted. And people don't (laughs) realise the damage their comments do. No, no.
1: I mean, it's amazing. So I follow about 9000 people on Twitter because I really love Twitter and about 6000 of them are historians. And I can get any question answered within about 40 minutes, anything in the world, literally anything in the world, because I know someone someone who knows someone who knows someone who can answer that question. And it's insane. Like you could literally go like, what were hats like in China in the 1320s? And within forty minutes I've got an answer. And you just sort of go, How does that work? And that's that's just that's an amazing community of expertise that's globalized thanks to, you know, the Twitter hashtag that we use, which is mm. TwitterStorian. Mm-hmm. Um but similarly <laughs> you know, you say something on there about Jeremy Corbyn or you know, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson or uh, anyone, Laura Kunzberg, whatever, and <laughs> inevitably there's someone going, Why don't you just die? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I'd rather stay alive. I've got a baby to look after. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose we better talk
0: about Spurs, Greg, before our our regular listeners um, get get angry with us. I mean, I've got so much more I want to talk to you about about your career afterwards. So we we will definitely come back to that. Um, But tell us why Spurs and a bit about the impact they've had on your life.
1: It's a weird one for me because... um... So I'm 37. So I was born in 82. So as you can probably gather, the kind of the, the moment the Spurs got sort of quite interesting, important in my life was sort of 91, where, you know, we were a proper football side with some actual success. And the reason for that, I think, is that I just, I remember seeing them on TV and just loving the name. And that's such a stupid, meaningless <laughs> reason to pick a team. And... Ironically, of course, Spurs are the only football team, I think, in the world named after a medieval knight. Oh, um, that is perfect. I'd never <laughs> even thought of that. It's perfect for you. Yeah, we are named after Harry Hotspur, who is in Shakespeare and who was one of the most important chivalric figures of the 13th, 14th century. Uh, you know, Earl of Northumberland or maybe Duke of Northumberland, perhaps. Um, Harry Hotspur. And uh, so as a kid, I just thought the name was amazing. I just loved the Hotspur bit. It sounded it's so cool. and. Um, <laughs> And coincidentally, at the same time, uh, three of my sort of closest friends also kind of were becoming Spurs fans. One of them uh, was uh, family Spurs fans, you know, family were fans and so they take taken together. But I think collectively, I think as friendship groups do, sometimes you, you sort of coalesce around something and you go, OK, we're all, are we all Spurs fans? OK, we're all Spurs fans. And that just was quite a nice thing that uh, none of us really uh, ever had a conversation about it. We just started talking about Spurs. But I distinctly remember just falling in love with the name and thinking, you know, that's a name that really has some oomph to it. Um, you know, it's not a United or a Rovers. It's Hotspur. I mean, that's that's pretty badass. So um that was a sort of funny thing because my dad's typically actually was a Chelsea fan, but he just sort of lost. The love of the game, really. He, uh, never got to go. He worked in crazy, crazy hard, um, to, to look after us. You know, amazing man, my dad. And, um, so he'd never really go to the Chelsea and he'd never really have time to watch them, particularly and match the day was on late. And so he didn't particularly care about Chelsea. And so my brother and I just sort of got into Spurs ourselves. And now my dad's a Spurs fan, which is lovely. So we, we take him to, you know, we took him to Wembley a few times to the Champions League and now he's the one going, right, let's go see a game. So, um, weirdly i suppose it was slightly self-generated um and then through my teens you know just loved spurs even though we were mediocre as, i mean not even mediocre we were just crap yeah um but still still had the shirts uh i remember having a really lovely purple uh, away shirt with rule fox on the back i was i really liked rule fox <laughs> i really liked rule fox as well he was, he kind of summed up my own game in that uh I was, a, I, I'm, I'm 37 now, so I'm not quite as quick, but I was very quick, uh, a sort of pacey right winger with no final ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've had plenty of those, haven't we? Yeah, exactly that. So I was sort of, I was a cross between Darren Anderton and Rul Fox because I had really bad knees and... Yeah. um and couldn't do sport after between the age of 18 and 31. I couldn't do any sport at all because my knees. So sort of sick note Anderton and, and Rule Fox. So, um, but then when we signed Ginella and obviously I'm half French, um, that for me was like the glory days. Like we had a flair player. We had a Frenchman. We had a guy with long hair. And it was amazing. Um, so, you know, I, I, those, those are the sort of things I look back on fondly, but we were absolute dog shit as a team and. You know, it was hard to care, um, but yeah, growing up, I was sort of, you know, long-suffering Spurs fan. We didn't go very often because we just couldn't really afford it, and, and my dad would always be working Saturdays, so um, I just would watch Taytext and final score, and you know, and read um, Match magazine and Shoot magazine and whatever, buy the shirts, and run about in the local park with a football at my uh, at my feet, and you know, fail to put in a cross at the end of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful! Some some good memories there. Um, and and in terms of you mentioned that you know how bad we were, I I I always felt that growing up support supporting a team that was bad sort of shaped me as a person a little mm. bit. Did you feel like they had, that Spurs had an impact on your personality?
1: Oh my god, so much. So much. I mean, it, I... Um... I just noticed actually my website I haven't updated it for I've I've updated lots of bits of it but there's a little bit at the bottom of the website I haven't updated it since I first built built it and it says at the bottom uh Greg has a love hate relationship with Spurs sorry about that and I really did like growing up it was just like a sort of existential kind of <laughs> black hole <laughs> that just would swallow us all up because we are predetermined we are we are designed to expect failure and disappointment is our kind of métier we we live in this world where at any moment success will be snatched away by our own hubristic failings. And uh, I think that's enormously shaped my attitude to life, to comedy, to politics, to, you know, what I expect from romances, from uh, friendships, probably. I mean, I'm I'm quite a sort of cheerful person uh, in terms of demeanour. You know, if you meet me in a pub, I'm, I'm sort of quite smiley and chatty and silly. And I you know like to have a, a laugh. But if you actually ask me to, to talk through what's going on in my head, I think I'm a sort of a catastrophizing uh, pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> who's always sort of thinking well that'll that won't work and that'll go wrong and uh, there's no point trying that so I'm fairly certain about 90% of my personality is a combination of Eddie Izzard jokes and Spurs being crap so uh, <laughs> oh guess... the, the bittersweet joys of being a Topper fan <laughs> I, I wouldn't I don't know about you but I, I wouldn't change it I know and also now we're we're on this sort of well maybe not quite so much now but last year or maybe two years ago we're suddenly a force and and it's not even that we are a a footballing force in terms of like you know we're picking up trophies because we're not and we know that and, and that's our bugbear still but we play football in a way that is ferocious and aggressive and full of attacking flair and uh it's bold and sometimes a bit high risk and Hugo Lloris could really do with a bit (laughs) a bit more kicking practice (laughs) um but it feels like we've arrived in this whole new um era where it's not even the same club anymore it feels like a paradigm shift where everything has changed and obviously the stadium's new sure the Pochettino's been around for five years that's that's great stability of a coach but it just feels like Somewhere along the line um there was a glitch in the matrix and Spurs sort of snuck through a hole in this kind of software and here we are as this muscular attacking creative football side. Um and until a few months ago we were no longer Spursy. You know, we would see out tough one nil leads, we wouldn't lose two goal advantages, we wouldn't collapse under pressure. You know, we the Battle of the Bridge where we, you know, Eric Dyer is sort of charging into people and Eric Lamella has sort of got, you know, knife blades. On his elbows as he charges into uh, gratuitous slide tackles that no one needs, um, it feels like we're a really different side, and it's really exciting. And for every uh, sort of you know embarrassing collapse against Arsenal or Olympiacos or Newcastle, there's still this thing there that's you know it's not my Tottenham, it's a better Tottenham, it's a sort of Captain America Tottenham. It's like. You know, you remember Captain America before he has the super serum. He's still this great guy. Yeah, he's he's this sort of heroic, courageous, five foot four dweeb who <laughs> who you want to be mates with, and who is definitely the right guy that you want by your side. But he can't throw a punch and he can't hold a rifle. And then they inject him with you know magic serum, and he becomes all of that plus he's a phenomenal athlete and he's tall and he's handsome. That's what it, that's what it feels like. We feel like Captain America after the serum, but we've still got the kind of the sort of identity of the original Dweeb. So I'm loving it. I really am loving the Pochettino hero. But it's slightly frustrating that we can't quite get it over the line and win something. I think what you're saying is that
0: Daniel Levy is super serum, basically. <laughs> and, uh, he's 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 the one he's the one isn't he that's transformed it or although we don't like to admit it all occasions. And uh, yes, yeah these signs
1: and fallbacks. Um but <laughs> Oh my god, yes, God, please just any <laughs> fullback. I mean, in a number of times I've sort of contemplated volunteering. You know, I, I can play right back if you need me. I will do a job. Um, I, I mean, I'd probably <laughs> rather have you at right back than, than Davinson Sanchez uh, at right back. Oh, that was extraordinary. I mean, I was listening to your um, Extra Inch um, chat just straight after the Olympiacos game. And what you were saying about his lack of kind of movement or like his, his stiffness... It's really interesting. So um I used to be quite good at sprinting. Um not not great, not not properly good good, but like I enjoyed it and I had bad knees so I was never very good, but I, I liked it and I liked the science of sprinting. I'm really interested in it. And his running style is Really odd. And uh, he leans forward too much. He does, he does. So all his weight is in his shoulders and he's always tipping forward and he's never on balance. And he's incredibly powerful when he gets going. And you know, we see him over 30, 40 yards, he, he he's got great recovery pace. But he's always leaning away from where he's meant to be. And it's like it feels like that's something you should have learned at the age of nine. Uh it's odd that an elite footballer playing for Spurs and his national side uh can't quite work out how to run. So it, it,
0: that is why that's one of the reasons why uh he always seems to get barged off the ball despite being this yeah. huge powerful man. Yeah. Uh, and and also why there's been a few um sort of meme style clips of him barging others off the ball, but he does it in such a kind of <laughs> Over the top way because yeah. exactly what you've just said because his, uh, his his weight is not shifting correctly it's it's very strange I mean yeah. I, I don't want to be too harsh on him because he no no he's, he's playing out of position and he's a very oh, competent yeah. centre back and I've got no issue with him playing centre back but it's just no, no. it's yeah. bizarre isn't it it's a strange one
1: it is and also. I don't understand why we're experimenting with him at right back. Sure. Uh, in the short term, just simply because, it, okay, if you're going to experiment with a right back in the short term, do it with someone who is not necessarily something more useful elsewhere. Yeah. Like, it feels to me like he needs every spare minute to get as good as possible as a centre-back because he's he's the next centre-back. He's our legacy centre-back. He's going to be taken over from Toby and Jan. Uh, I don't want him down the right side of the pitch stumbling around (laughs) and flailing with throw-ins. I want him, you know, absolutely practising at centre-back. If you're going to have to give it to someone else, I'd rather give it to Sissoko or... Mm. or just Or even just take someone out the under-23s and just, Mm. you know, give them 45 minutes because, to be honest... A mediocre right back is going to do a better job than a center back who can't even work out which way he's meant to be facing. So, uh, yeah, it feels like a weird one, but you know. it, it, it is very strange. I can't get my head around it. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
0: How do you feel generally about this season? You know, obviously it's not been the ideal start, but it's not <laughs> terrible at the same time. And it feels like, you know, well, the, the ground uh, the groundwork is there with the new signings and uh, some changes to the structures.
1: No, I mean, uh, uh, you know, to be boring again, I'm going to use another Sprinter reference, but uh, I'm hoping that we are very much the Usain Bolt of, uh, of football teams in that Bolt is a, ter- he's a terrible starter because uh, he's so tall. He could never get out the blocks very well. Uh, but once he picked up pace, he was unstoppable. And I'm sort of hoping that that's where we are, that we've just sort of slightly stumbled out the blocks and kind of gone, oh, hang on, what, what are we playing? Are we, a f- are we playing a diamond? Are we playing this sort of four two 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 thing? Are we thing? Uh, are we going to have a back three? Are we going to have a back four? Who's our right back? There's so many questions that we haven't quite answered yet. And obviously we've signed uh, three new players, all of whom should be first team footballers, but immediately two of them are crocked. One of them is sort of half injured. Um, We haven't really seen any of them at their best. I mean, uh, Tongi, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to do the French pronunciation, but Tongi Dombele is a, a brilliant footballer when he's match fit, but he's clearly not match fit. So we haven't really got our best side out and we haven't really even got Deli back. I mean, he looked really sluggish um, against the NPR Uh I'm a bit worried about Kane in that I don't quite know if he's, I don't know if he's pulling out of tackles now as a sort mm. of preservative thing to have a sort of 40 game per season career where he's not quite at it, but he's ever present. If that makes sense
0: I've seen a few people come up with that theory, and I think there, there could be some truth in it i think it's it's reasonable for players who've had a series of inju- a series of similar injuries rather yeah. um to to pull out of challenges because they're fearful of the same thing happening again so it, if that is the case you can you can understand it but if you listen to ex pros speak, they always say that if you don't go into a tackle fully committed you're far more likely to get injured than if you yeah are fully committed.
1: that that's interesting and I'm not saying that he's shirking he's definitely not shirking, but mm. I think He's twenty six now, I think, and he when he emerged as our, you know, heroic leader, he was a pressing forward. He mm. harried, he chased, he was powerful, he was physical, um, but he gave defenses no time. And obviously Ericsson and Delhi would also be there as the three of them doing that fantastic press, where we we would trap defenders into short passes that, that didn't quite reach their man, and suddenly we were breaking away. And he's not doing that anymore. And I don't think that's fitness because he looks in good shape. He started the season looking buff, and and mm. and you know he, I think his pace is is coming back to him, but he doesn't look to me like he's now the relentless pressing forward anymore. looks more like he's slightly happy to drop deeper, let Lucas Moura do the running, let Son do the running, and for him to sort of pick up loose balls or win headers. And obviously, he's a brilliant passer. And we've seen already this season, some amazing reverse switches. And his vision is fantastic. But I slightly miss the kind of bull in a China shop, Harry Kane, who was sort of unstoppable, relentless, and a two-footed shooting machine who would look up and hit it as soon as possible. Um feels like he's not quite there, and what we've got instead is still a very good striker, but not nearly as dangerous, maybe. But it might just be that, you know, he's working his way back in, and and maybe I'm doing that thing of, of being a bit um, over-critical and over-analytical. Sure, but I mean. Also, but
0: also, it's like we the, the the whole team have scaled back their pressing, haven't they? As well, so it, it yeah. could be that yeah. just that we're kind of evolving into a, a different side. And let's be honest, it's not one that we enjoy watching as much because the team of three years ago was a genuine joy to watch. For, yeah, for, let's probably six months. Six, I'd say six months. Those six yeah. months there, where we were the best I've ever seen Spurs, and. It was just wonderful, and like you say, Kane was spearheading it, and he was here, there, and everywhere, and he was wreaking havoc and taking shots from all over the place. Defenders were terrified of him. And if Pochettino scaled back the press to preserve fitness, to sort of change the system in subtle ways, then perhaps, perhaps that's the reason for Kane's slight drop off in intensity.
1: Mm, it is, and yet at the same time, the, uh, the drop off intensity doesn't feel deliberate. Doesn't feel like we're laying traps. It feels like we're not quite sure what we're doing I don't know the Olympiacos game was a a sort of slightly troubling because they packed up shop at like 70 minutes you know they took off Valbuena and they Mm. suddenly stopped being an attacking unit and we now had 20 minutes to sort of you know turn the screw and really make them pay and it just didn't really happen like the, the energy levels didn't particularly go up we brought Son on who got like five touches and maybe one drilled sort of cross shot thing but we didn't really make them sort of feel particularly under pressure and and obviously the Newcastle game was very worrying <laughs> because it was just it was just unbelievable how few chances we created um against a pretty mediocre side. I know they parked the bus very effectively and you can't, you know, I, I full credit to them for doing it, but that was really a bit troubling because I think we obviously are so reliant on Ericsson and have we now seen a distracted Ericsson? That's the thing, isn't it? If is he now just head turned, looking away, thinking of other things, and we've lost him? Or was it just a really bad one off game and, you know, next week back to back to his best? I don't know but we, we th- we've we've long said that when Eriksson doesn't play well
0: we don't play well and yeah. the olympiakos game was such a good example of that happening because he had a stinker as we, we all know it's um, mm. been been much talked about but we couldn't get going and i i genuinely think that was because Eriksson himself couldn't get going he he's such an important creative force within our team and we obviously we've signed Lo Celso and hopefully he'll come into the side and give us another yeah. option, but he's he's not there at the moment, so we we need Ericsson to be fit and firing, and uh that that concerned me. His head really dropped and he didn't look as confident than he has as he has in the past. Um so I'm I'm hoping that Pochettino can work his magic with Ericsson and kind of get him back on side and back focused. What yeah. was really interesting was post match Pochettino said that he needs to make training psychologically harder. Which I found I found really interesting. So what I'm taking from that, and I could be completely wrong, is that uh, he intends to add extra instructions or something else to training to stretch his players mentally so that when it comes to a match situation where they can't just keep doing the same thing and hoping for the end results change, they, they've got to up their game somehow. They have the capacity to do that. Um, and I love that he's thinking outside the box there. That's, that's quite exciting.
1: Yeah, and, and obviously, I think part of the enormous excitement with Pochettino is you get this sense that there's a guy there who's always slightly at war with his players but from a sort of loving place (laughs) that's such a good way of putting it like he he's not a kind of docile absent dad who just sort of (laughs) sends them the occasional christmas card he's he's always slightly in their face slightly you know praising them but at the same time saying well you know you can do better than this and we we i demand better i demand a, a higher level and i i wonder if he's trying to recalibrate the kind of team spirit to be more, a bit more of a sort of warrior spirit again and get back to just... I don't know if he's going to increase the sort of tactical complexity or if he's going to reduce it down actually to just much more aggression, more more bravery, more, you know, vertical passes and trying things. Because I think we're slightly stuck between two different systems at the moment. Mm. Um, the Palace game was obviously, you know, the first half an hour was amazing. Mm, just blew them away. Annihilated them. And also, I mean, Palace are a poor side and uh, Sacco at the back was like... Horrendous. <laughs> it's like he'd never seen a football before. It was mm. amazing. But... Um, we were really good, and also that was a fascinatingly exciting system for me because I looked at that four-two-two-two and immediately thought, "Oh, hello, that's that's the magic square, isn't it?" That's France uh, in the eighties, um, which is you know that classic um, Platini Tignazzia's mm. that amazing team of footballers who played through the middle and didn't really bother with width at all, and you know they had fullbacks rather than wingbacks back then, and they were a devastating football team who just passed their way around teams by being vertical and sharp and quick and getting their head up and immediately playing that pass like Harry Winks was doing and and even Sissoko was doing. And we were just bypassing their midfield with really lovely zipping passes straight into feet. Lamella was turning beautifully. Eriksen's head was up. It was very exciting. I was like, oh, great. This is the new Spurs. Uh, and then the Olympiacos. And you go, like, oh, no, mm. no. So I, I can't quite get a handle on it. It feels like we've tried two or three different things already this season and we don't quite know who our starters are. And we're not quite sure what the, what the ethos is and the philosophy is, but I'm not worried. I feel like this is the, this would be another good season. Certainly, I'm expecting to go pretty far in the Champions League. It'd be lovely to win something for goodness sake, but I'm expecting to finish top four again and, you know, get another run out. But I do wonder if we haven't solved all the problems that need solving in good time. And now we're going to lose Ericsson in January for sort of an arbitrary 40 million quid or something. And then. Uh, what do you do about creativity if Lo Celso is, if he's the new lamella, you know, if he's the new, you know, great hope who actually is constantly injured, then we're in massive trouble. Um So I'm, yeah, I'm not worried and I'm also not bullish. I'm intrigued.
0: <laughs> and I think that that comes from, you know, growing up, in the eighties and early nineties, when yeah. we were rubbish, you just you're still just happy to have a good Tottenham team, and I'm very much in the same in the same place as you on, on that. Um, Greg, I'm I'm so conscious of your time, but so I I really want to talk a little bit more about your career if that's okay before yeah, yeah. before I let you yeah. go. Um, because I think we'll have people listening who who you know pe- perhaps have aspiration to do similar things to what you've done or don't don't quite know what they're doing with their career but it, it could you tell us a bit about how you've ended up doing what you do so you've you've mentioned that you've got a PhD already
1: um no I don't have a PhD I, I was going to do a PhD and couldn't afford one so that's sorry um, right that's Okay. Right. yeah no so um yeah so uh I'm a historian. I. Um, I have a slightly strange job. My job title is public historian, which is not something that many of us know much about. But my my role essentially is trying to make history accessible and interesting to the general public. And I do that largely through comedy. And if not comedy, then stuff like film and telly um because uh pop culture essentially is, is where i tend to work yeah by so i advise on uh, horrible histories and write on it as well and I'm, I'm one of the sort of occasional joke writers i've written a few songs but mostly i'm the i'm the chief historian and i've done that for 11 years that's a kids' show for you know 7 to 11 year olds whatever but it's very funny and obviously it had a really lovely few years where it was also a kind of cult show that adults watch too and we still make that show and it's still a great fun to do but When you make a thing for 11 years, obviously people move on and do other things with their life. So, um, the amazing thing now is I teach a little bit at a couple of universities and I now teach history undergraduates who grew up on that show when they were eight years old and they're now 19. And I feel very old, but it's amazing to see that. (laughs) Um, but in terms of what I do, I guess my main thing is that I am interested in how do you make the enormous complexity of the past relevant and interesting to people who live now and so much of the time. When we do history at school, it's sort of a bit boring and a bit dry and difficult and you're not really switched on and you don't really care. But also you might not be at the right age for it because when you're 15, I mean, who gives a crap about the Weimar Republic? Um, <laughs> you know, what relevance does it have? If you, you know, if you're 15 years old and you're thinking about wanting to go out and hang out with people you fancy or go and smoke behind the bins or you're, you're trying to get hold of your first can of cider or you're, you're just trying to get through your teens. Um, how are you trying, you... To, or are you trying to be rule fox in the playground? Sure. I mean, if you're trying to be a pacey right winger with no final ball, <laughs> uh, and your teacher's kind of going, come on, we need to talk about Germany in the 1920s. It, it, you sort of go, ah, oh, do we really? I mean, <laughs> um, and obviously I was into history i've always been into history but i wasn't like mad passionate about it in my teens that came later and i think a lot of maturity comes in in older age and i think people in their late 30s and 40s when they start to have families start to look around at the world that they live in and look at their The kids, you know, the life their kids are growing up into to have and they kind of go, well, where's this come from then? And maybe their own parents are getting old. You know, you start to lose grandparents and great grandparents and family members and you start to think, well, I'd like to know more about where where we come from. And that's when people tend to switch on with history. So a lot of my career is basically trying to preempt that you know, mid 40s, sudden awareness by getting kids to start much younger with it. And then I'm trying to also catch people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 20s, 70s, whatever, who didn't love it at school and now are trying to come back around to enjoying history. But a huge amount of what I do is is using Twitter, social media, pop culture. Um, which is a pretty unconventional way of being a historian. That's not what most people think of. They think of, you know, people in tweed jackets uh, in universities. So my recommendations, you know, if people are interested in that kind of thing is, you know, obviously study, work hard. I read 250 books a year. Um, wow. I, uh I am constantly trying to learn new things every single day. I always ask everyone I meet to tell me something I don't know. Um, it's a really, for me, it's a relentless knowledge acquisition and knowledge transferal process where if I learn a thing, I'll try and tell 10 people that thing. And I'm sort of geared towards constantly trying to sort of turn. I'm sort of the Harry winks of history, basically. I'm all about <laughs> the kind of turnover, really. Get the ball, pass the ball. Um, I'm always just trying to get people interested and excited in in learning new things so I if people are interested in that kind of thing and probably not many people are but if they are you know there's amazing ways you can do that kind of stuff and there's amazing resources out there uh, that are affordable and cheap or even free sometimes there's some great stuff on YouTube there's some amazing um, history magazines that are affordable there's loads of brilliant podcasts such as my own You're Dead to Me on BBC Sounds (laughs) Um, but there's also just like you know radio shows um, BBC's In Our Time you can listen to their entire art for free, there's loads of ways to better yourself and to uh, develop your knowledge of the world. It doesn't have to be history, you know, science, chemistry, knowledge, politics, um, physics, whatever. There's we live in this amazing golden age. Even just Wikipedia is a marvel of human ingenuity. It's a phenomenal thing. It's the sum totality of human knowledge for free on the internet. that You can just go right, Wikipedia that. And I think that's a wonderful thing. So we live in this, <laughs> we live simultaneously in this sort of hellish political quagmire of Trump and, and Brexit, which is just the worst. But we also live in a, in a world of limitless knowledge that is there at the touch of a button. So um, I'm all about trying to share it and make it more accessible and get people inspired and, and excited. So that's that's my thing. You, you kind of
0: you're making it sound beautiful, but you're also making it sound easy. You're obviously incredibly good at what you do and not everyone will have the capacity to be able to do what you do. And but one thing I, I thought I'd just touch on is I assume a lot of your work over the years has been freelance as well. And that seems yeah. like a really brave thing to to be um willing to just go for these freelance opportunities and try and survive and make a living on you know with the bits you you
1: get yeah yeah so um there's a really interesting thing that when you when you pop up on telly for a bit people assume you're rich and there's a sort of curious irony to it because they then start to call you a lovey on twitter <laughs> whenever you make a point they're going to go well you're a lovey so you don't get to and it's like oh Firstly, I'm not a lovey. The lovey's an actor. Secondly, I earned £10,000 two years ago. That was my annual income for 2017, Um, which is the lowest in my career. It's lowest since, you know, the age of, what, 19 or something, when I worked, you know, with my dad part-time and as a gardener. Um, I've had better years than that, certainly. This year is actually doing all right. But two years ago, I was literally earning less than minimum wage, working my ass off, working six days a week, seven days a week, sometimes writing a book. Um, And that's one of the reasons I can never really get to see Spurs play live very often. You know, I I barely get to the stadium. I've not been to the new stadium yet because I I work six or seven days a week and I don't earn very much. So uh, it's a sort of curious irony that uh, because I'm on the telly, because I work on a famous TV show, people think I earn. I did a Twitter poll once and they said uh, the most common response when asked people, how much do people think I earn? They came back with 80 grand a year. Uh, And at that point, I was earning 10. So you can sort of see how the illusion of glamour Mm. kind of um gets attached to anyone who's on on telly but no as a general rule i tend to earn between 25 and 30 grand a year uh and yeah i'm a freelancer i have to work every spare minute i tend to work into the evenings i tend to work every saturday most sundays um i'm always reading always listening to things always working um but i love it it's it's my dream job it's the most amazing thing i get an enormous kick out of seeing kids singing horrible history songs or coming up to me and telling me about george iii um it's brilliant when you see a program that you've made go down really well and people you know write back and say oh thanks so much that's really great or so I will do it as long as I can afford to do it. And if it starts to, you know, not do very well, then obviously, I might have to <laughs> go and become an accountant. But yeah. for now, uh, I love what I do. Um, But yeah, there is that sort of interesting thing of being a freelancer and having to work for it and having to really scrabble hard. Um, And that's, I think, part of the ongoing challenge, I think, for loads of people these days, I think it's more and more of a, of a common thing that so many of us don't necessarily have a nine to five anymore. So, um, yeah, just one of the things that you have to live with, I guess. Your your passion and love for your job
0: certainly comes across in everything you do, and I think that's that's why you get work because you are so enthusiastic and it's um and and joyful and it's 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 great and it kind of we all benefit from that. And um, you know, I I'm just glad that you do what you do because it's such everything's good content. Um, what was really weird for me was you popped up in a couple of my favourite podcasts. So
1: you were on Richard Haring's <laughs> Leicester Square Theatre podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Which must have been terrifying, but also a lot
1: of fun. Really fun. Uh, Richard's a guest on my show, actually. He does um, an upcoming episode on Stonehenge, actually. So I, I got him back on for my own pod. But yeah, I mean, I've done... a f- a little bit of quite a lot of live comedy in little places. I mean, the first ever time I was on stage doing comedy was at the Hackney Empire on my own. And that was terrifying. I had to do 12 minutes for a charity thing. And I was so freaked out. I forgot my own name. I, just <laughs> got, on, I got on stage and said, hi, I'm... And then just started a different sentence. Like, I just couldn't remember my name. So... um once you've done that, everything else is sort of <laughs> a lot easier, to be That's honest. That's amazing. Um, but Richard Herring is a really funny, really clever guy. And he's, his podcast is so, like, I, I've listened to it for years and you just sort of, you're laughing along. And then you get on stage with him and he's so quick. Like, he's so fast. His brain is going way quicker than yours. And you suddenly go, oh, I'm in genuine trouble, Peter. I've got to keep up with someone who does this every day, who's sort of match fit as a, a man who comes up with stuff off the cuff. Um so it was really fun to do, but... Um... Well, it was really lovely because um, he, he does podcasts
0: with people who aren't stand-ups quite frequently and he yeah. changes. He, you can tell his tone changes because he was so interested in what you had to say. He was so fascinated by every word coming out of your mouth and he showed you so much kind of respect and he didn't give you the kind of... <laughs> the, the silly stuff
1: that he'd necessarily give to other no, stand-ups and he didn't ask me if i'd suck my own penis so. he didn't he didn't
0: and i don't think he asked you about an armpit that, that dispenses sun cream either no
1: no i didn't get any of the classic uh, so in questions. in some ways you lost out i did but um... I, it, was,
0: it was lovely to hear you on that and then he did um distraction pieces as well right
1: yeah yeah with uh scroobius pip and, and pip's such a nice guy and and uh such a thoughtful person who's you know he's obviously a musician he's a, an actor now he he's one of those people when you meet them and you just go oh you're really lovely i'm really I'm very happy to just sit here and chat to you for hours mm. um and that was yeah just a really lovely chat about my career and, and mostly about you know trying to get the horrible histories movie uh promoted as well because obviously we just made the film for kids to go see so um it's it's very nice when you do these things but it's bizarre because like two weeks before i did scrooby's pip he had like I don't know Danny Boyle on or something uh and I have very briefly worked with Danny Boyle very recently for the world war one anniversary thing I met him very briefly um but he's like an extraordinarily brilliant man and you sometimes sort of go I shouldn't be here uh (laughs) really I'm just a bloke he does some history and that's Danny Boyle who (laughs) literally did the Olympic ceremony and some of the best films of the past 20 years and is a sort of national treasure and I shouldn't be here bye (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I loved listening to you on on both of those podcasts. I would heartily
0: recommend them to all of our listeners um, if you want to hear Greg on more stuff. Um, Greg, finally, where can people hear... Where's the best place to direct people to to listen to your new
1: podcast? Uh, Yeah, it's called You're Dead to Me. Um, It is a BBC Radio 4 production for BBC Sounds. But... um... BBC Sounds is obviously an app that not everyone totally loves, and I understand that. It's definitely getting better as an app. Uh, So BBC Sounds is the best place to find it straight away, but you can also find it, I think, probably most other podcast places. I think certainly Apple, probably Spotify, um, all the kind of usual places. Um, And there's five episodes out right now, and I think there's probably another five dropping quite soon, and then there'll be another five turning up at some point. So 15 to enjoy. Uh, They're 45 minutes long, perfect for a commute Or, you know... a sort of uh, a bath if you want some people <laughs> listen in the bath it's very luxurious but uh um that's certainly the best place to uh, to watch it and then if you've if you've got kids horrible histories is on iPlayer all the time we've made eight series of it um and the movie is coming out on dvd at the end of november ready for christmas so you know do those things and then if you'd like books i mean i've written a book uh, four years ago and my next one's out in march so you know <laughs> what... there's plenty for everyone basically <laughs> lots of stuff lots of stuff but uh basically yeah listen to the podcast and If you like it, you know, by all means, give me a shout on Twitter and say hi, because it's always lovely to hear from people. But um, I'd love to do more of them. Uh, But, you know, there's always other things to to try. And I've got lots of other exciting irons in fires at the moment. So, uh, yeah, on to the next thing.
0: Awesome. Um, Thank you so much, Greg, for your time. And um, yeah, let's hope let's hope Spurs do finish the season strongly and and don't revert back to what they were like during our childhoods. (laughs) I'm sure I'm I'm sure we'll be fine. Right. They can't be that bad, surely. <laughs> can't be that bad. That is the place to end it. Great dinner, thank you so much. Cheers. You've been listening to The Extra Inch. Thanks to Nathan A. Clark for production. Thanks to Barney for being Italian. Thanks to Adam Gardner for the artwork. Thanks to David Lindner for our intro music. You can find him on Twitter at Davy Shambles and the SoundCloud team. Do check him out. He's great. Great, great. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Extra Inch. Email us via podcast at theextrainch.com.ca and subscribe via your usual podcast platforms. And if you do enjoy the podcast, consider leaving us a rating and review. That would really help.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.